welcome to episode nine of Beyond the Veil, a podcast all about Harry Potter and mental health. I'm your host, Madison Ford. So this is our first episode in the month of May and the first episode of Mental Health Awareness Month. For this month, I'm really excited to share interviews with mental health professionals and other people who encounter mental health in their professional lives. Our first interview is with Sarah Oliveris, who shared her personal Potter story on the show not too long ago. In this episode, we go in-depth on Order of the Phoenix, Harry, and post-traumatic stress disorder. There will be no whisper in today's show because this episode is longer than usual, but it's definitely worth the listen. We go over so much valuable information and super in-depth with our analysis. Let's dive right in. Welcome to Beyond the Veil, everybody. Today, we will be talking with Sarah Oliveras. So, Sarah, we've had you here before, um, but I hope that you can just give us a little background information about yourself for anyone who hasn't listened before. Yeah, hello. Um, my name is Sarah Oliveras. I'm a licensed chemical dependency counselor in the state of Texas. Um, I'm also in my second year of training as an SE practitioner, so my official designation is an SE practitioner um, in training. Uh, Somatic experiencing therapy is a particular type of therapy that has to do with like um, sort of uh, bottom-up processing. Um, So that basically means like there's a um, sort of an ongoing two-way connection between um, your body and your brain um, and your brain and your body. Um, So most traditional talk therapies tend to be um, top-down processing, which is changing your thoughts, and then through doing that, you're kind of changing your feelings. Um, SE tends to focus more on um, working with the actual physical experience of emotions in order to kind of uh, provide meaning to the brain. And so it tends to be a little bit more effective for things like trauma and PTSD, um, which sort of bypass the uh, the more kind of cognitive thinking. Right. Absolutely. Um, I want to ask you a million questions about that, um, (laughs) but I want to move to, um, just, can you give us a little bit of a background, uh, about your background in psychology? Sure. Um, so I've, uh, I've been into psychology almost as long as I've been into Harry Potter. Harry Potter predates it by about two or three years, I think. Um, So I uh, wanted to be uh, a counselor since I was about 12. So I just I just kind of got lucky there. Um, And uh, so I've been sort of a psychology nerd um, for almost as long as I've been a Harry Potter nerd. Um, And I've uh, my I have a bachelor's degree in psychology. um, And I've been working as a counselor for about three and a half years now. So it's been good so far. Awesome. So let's dive into the big question. Um, This is kind of big, exploratory, a little vague, but lots of people have drawn connections between Harry Potter and mental health for a long time. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So I'm wondering, where do you see kind of the big basic intersections between Harry Potter and psychology or mental health? Uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of really great, um, really great examples. Um, the great thing about literature is you got, you got characters are often, you know, they, they kind of tend to fall into sort of neater little boxes, which um, make them maybe a little bit less like real people. But at the same time, they 
um, they're kind of easier to analyze, like they're good examples of human behavior, I should say, even if they're not always, um, you know, as three-dimensional as real people, uh, if you know what I mean. And so like mm-hmm. there's um, Voldemort, uh, I once wrote a paper in college uh, diagnosing Voldemort with antisocial personality disorder. Um, and uh, <laughs> there's there's a couple of others. Um, there's Neville with social anxiety. Um, there's Dementors and depression, which you and I have talked about. Um, and uh, there's a lot of cool... Um, mental health allegories, I guess. And JK Rowling has kind of said as much in different interviews, like different people are uh, sort of examples of uh, kind of different aspects of humanity, including um, different mental health disorders that people can have. Absolutely. That's a lot of the wonderful big picture stuff. And we could go into detail on any of the... Right. I mean, like you said, you wrote a whole paper on (laughs) Voldemort and antisocial personality disorder. Um, But specifically today, we're going to kind of be talking about trauma and PTSD. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that you are in your second year of training as a trauma therapist. And can you Mm -hmm. give us a little information on that process? Yeah. So um, the the training that I'm going through has a lot of uh, sort of practical experience that goes along with it. Um, We sort of all everybody in my class sort of all gets together and practices on each other um and you know it's as safe and ethical of a way as possible um and we we kind of start with um the basics and so i've completed my first year and um just a couple of weekends ago um did my the first training of uh the second year and um a lot of what we're working on is um just how different types of trauma um can kind of present in the body Um, there's Mm -hmm. this thing called your vagus nerve, which is basically, um, just this huge giant nerve that connects your, your brain and, um, your viscera or your internal organs. Um, and it's basically responsible for, um, sending information from the body to the brain. Um, so for, um, normal processing, uh, it kind of goes through the frontal lobe, which is sort of where your, your personality lives. It's where you do a lot of your interpreting and your decision making and things like that. Um, and uh, most of what we do in psychology, when you go to any um, regular counselor, you know, you're, you're going to be working a lot with that. Like, what are my thoughts and what are my irrational thoughts and how can I change my thoughts to kind of change the way I'm living? Um, with trauma therapy, um, the vagus nerve has um, about as many neurons as like a cat's brain. And it's oh, wow. uh, so it, so it's almost like a second brain um, that kind of connects to your um, internal organs. And there's a lot of information being passed from the body to the brain that completely bypasses the frontal lobe. So the example that I like to give is like if there's a fuzzy on my sweater, um, <laughs> I am screaming and slapping at that fuzzy like my life depends on it before I even have time to register that it's a fuzzy and that it's a fuzzy and not a spider. You know, uh, because that is completely bypassing the part of my brain that's responsible for decision making. I'm just going into fight or flight mode right off the bat because um, there's no your your body is basically saying there's no time to make a decision here. You just need to start like hitting your arm, (laughs) you know, Um, you need to uh, swerve the wheel. You need to run away because there's. Uh, this stick in the road might actually be a snake, you know, like you're, um, there's not, in life or death situations, there's not always time to really make a decision about um, 
how safe you are, you know, and so it will completely bypass the part of your brain that thinks, essentially, and go to the part of the brain that's going to just get you moving. Um, and so when people go through traumatic experiences, um, there's essentially a, a, a life-threatening or a perceived-to-be-life-threatening um, experience that overwhelmed the system. And so there was no time to think about it. There was only time for uh, signals to be sent from the body to the brain that we need to go, we need to do something, we need to either fight or run or freeze. Um, mm -hmm. And with traumatic experiences, that energy that kind of gets mobilized can sometimes get stuck um, for a lot of different reasons. We can either we didn't get a chance to protect ourselves the way that we wanted to, or um, there was just nothing that could have been done about it, or um, we dissociated uh, from the end of that experience. And so even though we eventually did get to a point where we were safe again, we didn't really experience that on like a physical level. We didn't actually get the sensation of safety. You know what I mean? Right. And so the body in a lot of different ways is still under the impression that we're still in danger. Or every time there is a similar situation that comes up, um, a similar fight or flight response comes up um, because the body doesn't know that we're safe now. You know what I mean? So that's, right. I guess, sort of, Without going into too much detail, that's kind of a, um, a theory on how trauma works. Can you think of an example of, um, like, so if, what is a situation where somebody could go through an experience like that and they would feel the safety at the end? Sure. If that so, makes sense. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, I'll, so th there can be times where, let's say you're, um, uh, okay, so here's a good example, roller coasters. Um, mm -hmm. We get onto a roller coaster and we're terrified and roller coasters are simulated danger. Um, the body feels all of the things it would feel as if you were actually about to die. You feel like swooping sensation in your stomach, your hands and your arms might go numb or you might feel your hands and legs like more, um, you know, you're feeling like blood rushing to your face and your, your heart rate is increasing. But then at the very end, um, we always turn to the person that we got on the roller coaster with, we make eye contact, there's social engagement, we laugh, we're shaking a little bit. All of those things are um, uh, emotional discharge. We're like discharging energy that was mobilized to save us. We have um, I, I went on a roller coaster once where I really messed up my legs because I was pushing down on the ground really, really mm -hmm. hard with my legs the entire oh, time, um, which was actually like that's energy being mobilized to my legs so that I can run away because right. the body doesn't know the difference. The body doesn't realize that I'm on a roller coaster. I'm not actually in danger because it's completely bypassing the part of my brain that interprets those things. And so all my mm -hmm. body knows is that I'm, I'm afraid and it's automatically without me having to think about it, mobilizing all this energy to my legs so that I can run away. And that was causing me to push down on the floor of the roller coaster. Right. And so we get to the end and we're laughing, which is important. Like that, that is the, I'm safe. I'm alive. I survived feeling, um, when right. you, when somebody scares you and then you laugh together or um, when you um, 
nearly get into a car accident and then you pull over to the side of the road and then you take a big deep breath, you know, maybe you're shaking a little bit. Um, these are all things that kind of indicate that you're aware of your body, like you're, you're having a body experience of being safe. Um, I was actually in a car accident in 2011 and um, I was very calm after that car accident. Mm -hmm. Um, so my, my car spun out and it landed in the HOV lane. Um, I hit the median wall going about 80 miles an hour. <laughs> and I do remember thinking like, this could be how I die right now. You know, like that yeah. thought actually went through my head. Um, but then the car landed and I was very uh, calm. And for a while I was like, man, I handled that pretty well. Um, but then I started getting migraines. And I started um, experiencing like a lot of tension in my body. And I started, there were other signs that like there, there was still stress going on. Um, and I started mm -hmm. working on it with a, an SE therapist and um, I won't get into it, but there was, there was a lot there. There was a lot of, uh, essentially what happened was my, my car landed and my brain sort of checked out <laughs> and was mm -hmm. kind of like, that didn't happen. Um, and so there were still these tension patterns happening in my body that had to do with, um, specifically stress. Anytime I was experiencing stress, the muscles in the back of my neck were tensing up as if it was needing to hold the head on because I experienced whip whiplash during that car accident. And so, mm -hmm. um, there was a lot of tension going on that was, um, causing me migraines because anytime I was experiencing stress my body was having the same reaction as the last time I had had that level of stress and had almost died. So your body is doing these things to protect you. Um, right. In, you know, 10,000 10, years ago, if I pass a particular rock out, outcrop and um, I see a tiger and then I run away from the tiger and I escape, you know, and then I see that particular rock again, I'm going to have a, a, a fear response to it. And I may not even know why. Somewhere in the body, I recognized that I almost died here before and I need to get away. And so PTSD happens when the body is recognizing triggers that are similar to um, the, the threatening event. And it's responding right. in the same way as when that event happened. So there may not be a... Um, this may not be a question that could be answered or answered easily, but I'm curious if it seems like there are some people who go through traumatic experiences and maybe they don't suffer from post-traumatic stress. Mm -hmm. um, is that true? And if so, do we know why? I think that's definitely true. And I think there are probably just a million different reasons why that each have to do with the individual person. Um, sometimes mm -hmm. it's about how bad the experience is. A lot of times it's not. Sometimes it's about um, the person's particular physiology. Sometimes it's about how much um, power the person felt like they had in that situation. Um, a situation where you, felt, where you felt like you got to act and you got to um, be a part of the resolution um, is going to feel different from a situation where you felt like you were helpless. You know, children who experience trauma um, often experience it very differently from an adult. A child who experiences a car accident 
um, can't do anything, can't be a part of the resolution. And so the feeling that they have, even if everything turns out fine, is bad things happen. And I've got to rely on the, the adults in my life to protect me because I can't protect myself, you know, versus right. the adult who was driving, who was able to swerve the car into safety and everything was okay has a sense of, I can protect myself and I can protect my child. You know, that's possible. And they, they can yeah. feel that on a physiological level that their their capacity to um, handle traumatic situations, like they, I've got this, you know? And so that person is going to have a different level of stress remaining in their body compared to somebody who felt helpless. Do you know what I mean? And so- um, yeah. I didn't know that about, uh, especially the power mm-hmm. perceived like power differential in a situation, I th- but I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I think that's especially important. Um, if I have a feel, let, let's say I was fighting a tiger, you know, if I have a feeling in my body, like I'm aware of my arms pushing this thing away, you know, if I'm aware of the power in my legs as I'm running. You know, these are things that are going to lead to when I finally do get to safety, I'm going to have a physical experience that I um, that I made it and that I made myself make it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, As opposed to um, if I am dissociated from my body because I'm that terrified, which is a thing that happens, um, I may get to safety and feel like that was completely luck. You know, like I didn't, that wasn't because of me. It was just because the animal was too slow and next time it won't be or something like that, you know? And so that feeling like you were powerful in a situation that was traumatic, um, is, is a big, it's a big deal for whether or not the experience was traumatic, but it's also something that we kind of work with in therapy, you know, um, how do we, um, add the experience of power to these memories? what would need to have happened? You know, um, if you're, if you're a child in the backseat of a car and that's the traumatic memory that you're working with as an adult, um, we might have you work with, um, just visualizing. It sounds kind of hokey. You'd have to be there, but, um, kind of visualizing if you were, what, what would it have felt like to be the person driving? Um, what would it, what, what are other times in your life where, um, there were, uh, terrifying situations that, you did have power in and what did that feel Mm -hmm. like and when i say feel it's like it's an emotional level but it's also what do you physically experience in your body when you think about that you know and so we're we're introducing to the nervous system the feeling of having control in these situations Mm -hmm. i think that's wonderful i sometimes i feel a disconnect in how we talk about the body's experience during trauma versus the uh you know it's it sometimes feels like it's talked about as if it's this totally mental thing, but it really isn't. We're a lot of times just not in tune with those body sensations, mm-hmm. I think. Right. So somebody who is experiencing uh, post-traumatic stress and has undergone a severe trauma experience, how will they perceive the world differently than somebody who hasn't? Right. So um, if I can sort of tie this into um to harry potter's experience absolutely in Order of the Phoenix. um so harry has a traumatic experience at the end of 
um, at the end of book four. Um, and mm-hmm. I think it's important to also note here that those with traumatic histories are more likely to become traumatized because the nervous system is already primed. The nervous system is already primed to um, consider threatening experiences as potentially overwhelming. And so their mm-hmm. fight or flight response is going to be more significant. Um, or they, they may respond to um, new overwhelming situations the same way that they did before. Because the body is experiencing um, fight, flight, or freeze. Um, fight is going to be anger response. Like people feel rage. They feel um, uh, blood tends to go to the arms and legs. They feel like they need to protect themselves or protect uh, the people around them or something like that. Um, so that that's the, the physical experience of the fight response. Uh, the flight response is going to be the desire to get away, um, to run as fast as possible in the other direction. And then freeze only happens when a situation is completely overwhelming, like the tiger's got me, it's chewing on me, this is happening. Um, and mm. the that experience is um, has one of two... Um, intended purposes, right? Either the tiger is going to lose interest um, or let its guard down, and that gives me a chance to get away. Or if I'm about to die, at least I'm not going to feel anything. Um, So the freeze response is like um, the numbness, dissociation, I can't feel anything. Um, And so in the the modern world, these things are um, experienced a little bit differently. When we have a traumatic experience, we might feel a fight response or a flight response, freeze is going to look more like depression. Um, it's going to look more like a kind of a shutting down. Mm-hmm. And when we have a survival response, there's a trigger, an activation, and a deactivation. And we kind of talked about that. Um, so right. for Harry, um, he has a traumatic history um, with what happened mm-hmm. to his parents. And then also, um, I think it's, it's really interesting in book three when he's trying to Uh, think of a happy memory to practice the Patronus charm with. He even thinks to himself, well, clearly nothing at the Dursleys is going to do. Let me think, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and it's just this little passing comment, but it's also like, man, nothing happy happened to him for 10 years. Like that's, that's a, that's significant emotional neglect, you know, and for somebody who experiences emotional neglect, they usually have this sense of, I need to accomplish things on my own. Um, people right. are sort of inherently not trustworthy or at least not reliable. And mm-hmm. I have to protect me. And there's nothing standing between me and bad things happening except for me. You know, and that's, that is an inherently stressful <laughs> um, yes. way to feel. And, and so that's kind of Harry's starting point. Um, and it's not like Sorcerer's Stone through, through Prisoner of Azkaban were like, you know, easy easy school years <laughs> for him or anything and so at the end of uh, Goblet of Fire he sees a classmate murdered he survives an attempted murder um, he had the entire event was watched by a crowd which kind of increases the sense of helplessness um, mm-hmm. and then he escapes very narrowly by what Harry perceives as just luck you know, the right. wands did a thing and then there were ghosts and I don't know what happened, but some crazy <laughs> stuff happened that I won't be able to count on happening again. 
and and then and that's why I'm safe. You know, I think minimally does Harry leave the graveyard feeling like he survived because of his own of his own doing. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so I think it's significant that Harry was fighting to stay alive in that experience. And he is experiencing a fight response when he returns to normal life. When he's around Ron and Hermione, he feels angry. When he's around people um, at Hogwarts, he feels angry. When he's around the Dursleys, even to a greater extent than he has been before, he just feels angry. Anger is a survival response. It's saying, um, I have had my boundaries violated. I have had um, things happen to me that I'm angry about. Like I, I am trying to defend myself in these situations. Um, so Harry is actually like his thoughts and behaviors resemble um, like veterans who return home from war, feelings of like responsibility for those who died, uh, feeling isolated, uh, feeling combative with everyone, avoiding people because he can't control his anger. Um, and then night terrors, which is actually the body's attempt to integrate a traumatic event into mm-hmm. the whole narrative. Trauma is um, anything that resists normal emotional processing, um, which could be a car accident that maybe wasn't even that severe to, uh, you know, from a, a medical perspective um, mm-hmm. to, you know, like uh coming home from combat, you know, from, and to sexual assault, to, um, animal attacks, to near drownings, um, lots of different things, like, and, and all of these different types of traumas are going to have different symptoms based on whether during the experience, the person felt the impulse to fight or to flee or to freeze up and kind of, uh, feign, being dead you know what i mean so if, right. if somebody is feeling a fight response when they feel like their life is threatened um and they come out of that if they develop ptsd you're going to see remnants of that fight response and that's what we kind of see with harry in book five so basically he comes out of that experience in the graveyard mm-hmm. and he's there's not that moment. He doesn't get that moment of laughter after a roller coaster. Right. No yeah. sigh of relief. You know, as a, you know, you're in a trauma therapy training. So you're educated in some of the ways that it's important to help people when they're going through this. Mm-hmm. And what what are some of the things that are important and how doesn't Harry get those? Mm-hmm. I, I think it's interesting um, the ways that he's kind of navigating, trying to interact with people um, mm-hmm. when he comes back, when he's at the beginning of book five. Um, I think you said it really well just there. Like he doesn't get that release of I'm alive because he comes back and then immediately he, the, the thing with Moody happens and the, right. the questioning starts and there's all this uncertainty and there's all this attention. And so the, it doesn't say so in the book per se, but the natural response there would be to sort of shut down um, and kind of not experience anything if I don't have to, you know. And mm-hmm. at the end of book four, he talks about kind of wanting to be around Ron and Hermione and then getting there and kind of being like, oh, I don't think I want to be here. And then he goes walking. Um, and he's still kind of experiencing that at the beginning of book five. Um, so there's one part where when he first gets to Grimmauld Place, 
Um, he's thinking to himself, uh, the warm glow that had flared inside him at the side of his two best friends was extinguished as something icy flooded the pit of his stomach. And these are physical sensations, right? These are, this is the body experience. These aren't things that are being thought of consciously. Um, and he thinks all of a sudden after yearning to see them for a solid month, he felt he would rather Ron and Hermione left him alone. Um, and this is something that a lot of people with PTSD kind of experience, like they want to be around people. Um, because we're social creatures and we feel safety in numbers. Um, so we're, we're fighting, we're, we're fleeing, we're freezing, and, but we're also calling for help. You know, we're mm-hmm. reaching out to people because it always feels like, you know, a problem shared is a problem halved. It feels like if we have backup, um, then we're not, we're, then we can handle this better. You know, um, we all on some level, if we can find people that we feel like understand um, and we feel like they can protect us, that's a safe feeling. That's a happy feeling, you know. And so Harry is kind of reaching out for this. But then when he's around people, he's having this remnant fight response. You know, um, after Harry learns that he's been tailed all summer and he didn't know about it. Um, he says, um, well, that didn't work that well, did it? I had to look after myself after all, didn't I? And mm-hmm. he, he has this like anger at having been alone, um, having been alone all summer, but probably also having been alone in the graveyard. Like the one person that he go- comes to the graveyard with is dead within like 30 seconds. And then he is profoundly alone. Um, yeah. and then trying to come back to Privet Drive, and he's left alone. He feels like Dumbledore's ignoring him. He feels like Ron and Hermione, even irrationally, like, you could have done more. You could have you could have helped me. You could have reached out to me, and you didn't, you know, and the fight response says, they're doing it on purpose. They're doing it to hurt you. You need to defend yourself, you know, and it's right. not, it doesn't have to be rational because it's not really going through the rational brain, <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> the, the frontal lobe is not checking the validity of any of these thoughts. Um, it's just going from the bottom up processing. It's going from this feeling of I'm in danger and I need to protect myself and no one's coming to help me. Um, and everything that is happening in his, in the present moment is being filtered through that feeling. It's being interpreted by that feeling instead of the other way around. Um, so we kind of see this continue, um, when, uh, like after the school year starts, um, he says to her, like Hermione says, Lavender thinks he's lying or something. And, um, Harry goes like, been having a nice little chat with Lavender about whether or not I'm a lying attention, attention sinking crap, have you? And, and all of that. And then at Grimmauld place, he yells at them. Like, I suppose you've been having a real laugh. I'll hold up here to here together. So it's not that he is rationally thinking through Ron and Hermione's actions and then coming to the conclusion that they're laughing at him. It's that he has this angry um, fight response feeling that uh, the people he loves um, don't love him back, that he's alone. Mm-hmm. Um, that he uh, has to protect himself and he's the only one who's going to protect himself and that he's in danger. And that feeling is interpreting everything that happens to him. Um, and right. so it leads him, it, it creates the thought, you guys are just enjoying this, aren't you? You guys don't know what I'm going through. You don't know what I've been through. 
um, you're just, you know, this is all a joke to you, basically. Um, and so they, um, Hermione and Ron are trying to, you can tell they're trying to be understanding, but in a lot of ways, this, none of this is making sense to them. Harry's response is really confusing to them, even to Hermione in a lot of ways, because mm. it's not rational, because it's not really based on the present moment. It's based on this event that happened at the end of book four. It feels really important just to emphasize that with post-traumatic stress, there's it's almost like there's this barrier between... Mm-hmm. Um, you know the the body's experience and the rational brain the, there's the, the right. part of the brain you know that is logical that's not involved mm-hmm. in this process at all because it can't be because of that experience of uh, life-threatening fear right yeah and it happens very very quickly it's it's a lightning fast response if I mm-hmm. see a rock outcropping where a tiger attacked me I feel a flutter in my stomach before I even know what happened. This happens a lot when I walk out to my car. Um, My footsteps will echo in my apartment complex. And Mm -hmm. just vaguely, it sounds like somebody is walking behind me. And I walk out to my car at 4.30 in the morning. And (laughs) I will feel like this electric shock in my arms and legs and a dropping feeling in my stomach. And I'll look around, which is an orienting behavior, which is a survival response. Um, Mm -hmm. Before I even really know what it is that I heard, you know, and only a second later will it occur to me, um, I thought I heard footsteps, you know. And so Harry is having this feeling that he's alone. And the last time he felt profoundly alone and his life was in danger, his body had a response to fight and defend himself. And so now when he feels alone, fight response before he even knows what's happening, right? And I think it's also significant that he seems to have this kind of paranoid thought that comes up over and over again that people are laughing at him in the graveyard. There was a circle of Death Eaters who were laughing at him as he was fighting for his life. And so this is what's coming up every time he's interacting with people. I'm in danger. I'm alone. They're laughing at me. And it's it's compounded by the fact that everybody is telling him that what happened to him didn't happen. You know, nobody is understanding. Nobody um, there's no validation of what he went through. And so he he really is defending himself in a lot of ways. You know, he's defending himself against umbrage, against what people are saying about him, the Daily Prophet and all of that. And he so so it's all this um, it's this mashup of what happened before and the feelings that he has that like the the body memories that he has surrounding that and what is Mm -hmm. actually happening in the present moment. You know, Harry is responding to something that's not happening anymore, but through the context of what is happening right now. And so right. he he goes back and forth between, um, like, righteously trying to defend himself in any given moment and then feeling shame or regret later, like, shouldn't have, yeah. should have kept my temper with Umbridge because now I'm 
you know, now I'm banned from Quidditch practice or this or that, or, you know, like there are consequences to me losing my temper and I should have held my temper. So like in his calmer, rational moments, he knows I didn't handle this right. He often feels shame about blowing up at Ron and Hermione and wishing he hadn't, you know, so like Mm -hmm. when he's calm, he knows that he is out of control. Um, right. But in these individual moments when he is having this remnant fi- survival response, you know, it's that's not what he's thinking about. It's completely bypassing the, the part of the brain that interprets. I think the you had mentioned he's still kind of uh, fighting against these people who don't believe him about his story of what happened. And mm-hmm. this is especially relevant just I mean a lot of people who have experienced sexual assault uh, you know a lot of people don't believe it when they say it has happened and not just that but any traumatic experience um, there are a lot of ways that people can deny it and I feel like that Mm -hmm. feeling of denial can be really difficult for survivors to deal with and I wonder how you think that plays into Harry's recovery during Order of the Phoenix Yeah, um, I think that's definitely true. I think for a lot of people who haven't experienced PTSD or maybe just don't even realize that the person that they're talking to, like, that's what's going on with them, um, you know, it can look like a lot of different things. It can look like um, they don't believe that what happened to this person really happened to them. Um, It can also look like it was just a car accident, like people mm-hmm. get into car accidents all the time, you know, you're going to be fine. Or what happened to you happened 20 years ago. You really need to move on with your life, you know, things like that, or even just an attempt to fix it, you know, and you kind of see that with sexual assault sometimes where people are like, well, are you sure it really happened the way that you think it happened? You know, is it possible mm-hmm. it actually happened differently, you know? And sometimes people are being you know, just sort of callous. And then sometimes people are genuinely trying to help. But um, I think the important thing to uh, recognize about that is the body doesn't know the difference. You know, um, the body doesn't know the difference between um, something that that happened a particular way and um, they're interpreting it correctly or it was all a huge misunderstanding. (laughs) You know, (laughs) the body doesn't get that the body is just knowing I, I I felt like I was in danger and I felt like I was powerless in that situation um, yeah. that's that's all that's going on and um, so I think it's important to think about that um, especially with like children and the way we provide medical care the way we provide dental care there are people who are deeply deeply traumatized by hospital experiences and things like that where they they weren't in danger. They were arguably safer than most other times in their life. Um, but the, they felt like they were in terrible, terrible danger. They were, they had a fear that they were going to die even on a subconscious kind of level. And the Mm -hmm. body was responding accordingly. And then after that experience, um, they are struggling to adjust to normal life with this feeling that they could die and they wouldn't be able to do anything about it. And everything is getting interpreted through that lens at that point. And so um, for people who are trying to um, interact with somebody 
who is having this kind of response, um, I think the important thing to remember is just um, like acknowledging, really like respecting the validity of their body experience. Um, it, it almost, you know, to a certain degree, it almost a little bit doesn't matter what happened if they mm -hmm. are still living with this feeling, you know? Yeah. And so even if somebody uh, wasn't in danger that time that they were hospitalized, um, it really doesn't cost you anything to just say, wow, that sounds terrifying. You know, like that sounds really scary. You know, right. I, I would have been scared too. You know, like that's, I think that's the best thing that you can do to start with is just helping this person feel like, okay, I'm not crazy, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, this, this reaction that I'm having was an appropriate reaction on many levels, you know, because I felt like I was going to die, even if I knew cognitively that that wasn't true, or I suspected, you know, like, it, it's, um, you know, or even if it wasn't necessarily a life threatening situation, you know, like, there are people who experience, um, for example, a sexual assault where um, they don't necessarily feel like their like their their life is in danger, but but so much is in danger, and they have to they have to find a way to sort of integrate the experience of that into their larger life narrative. You know, they have to figure mm -hmm. out how to go back to their everyday life feeling like there was this situation where I was powerless and right. that is that is a very difficult thing to do um and so for people trying to kind of um continue their life story you know um with this new information and trying to build more information to work with you know that that is a that's a long process um for a lot of people and it's a difficult process and i think support and um, validation is really kind of the only appropriate response. Um, yeah. Just know that most anything else that you do, unless you're a mental health professional seeing this person as a client, you know, if you're just, if you're a loved one trying to support this person, um, almost anything else you do is really not going to necessarily be effective. Um, there's right. no rationalizing away trauma. You know, there is only yeah. working with the, the feelings you know, and that's okay, you know, and just supporting somebody in their journey with that. Absolutely. We know that, I mean, unless it happened behind the scenes, Harry probably didn't go see a mental health professional after the graveyard. Right. <laughs> um, it was kind of left in the care of Dumbledore and the other adults. And I'm curious to know right. what you thought about how they handled the situation afterwards. Yeah, um, I I liked that at the very end of book five, um, Dumbledore admits to Harry that he mishandled his relationship with Harry after the graveyard. Um, mm -hmm. I thought that was significant because that that is that's that that experience of telling somebody you know like you're not crazy <laughs> you're that was that was exactly you know like I understand that I messed up there. You know, um, right. so I thought that that was cool. In in the movie, um, the Order of the Phoenix movie, which I saw recently, um, Harry yells at Dumbledore, look at me, what's happening to me after uh, Arthur Weasley gets attacked. Mm -hmm. um, 
And both of the actors really played that moment <laughs> really well um, because Harry Harry has this very, like, angry um, response of look at me, like, why aren't you looking at me? I, I need to know what's happening to me. And then Michael Gambon looks back at him um, startled, you know, and I think mm-hmm. is kind of realizing in that moment that he he's messed up you know and harry has felt very isolated um the dursleys are obviously no help at all (laughs) and so the um the big thing that all the other adults in harry's life kind of messed up on was um leaving him alone with the dursleys who were you know profoundly unsupportive um Mm -hmm. and so harry has this feeling of um everything that happened to him, like he's alone with it now and he has to figure out how to do that. And this is a big part of, um, children, which Harry is just barely 15 at this point. Um, you know, still very, very young, uh, trying to figure out how to integrate this experience and how to, um, how to feel better again, how to feel normal again. And he doesn't know how to do that because no 15 year old knows how to do that. You know, and he's left alone with it. And when you feel alone with something, it feels like this is as good as it's going to get, you know, and this is a big part of why, you know, I encourage everybody, like, please go to therapy. Like, (laughs) you can always be happier. You know what I mean? Like, um, I think it's great to get uh, counsel from other people and to talk to each other about our experiences because, um, when you feel alone with something, it feels like there is no way to fix this, you know? Right. And when you start to talk about things with people, it starts to feel possible for things to get better, you know? And so the adults in Harry's life really kind of leave him alone with that, which mm-hmm. leave him with this feeling of, um, what's happened to you was just too messed up. And this is just how you're going to feel for the rest of your life, you know? That's the logical conclusion for somebody, especially a child who is trying to um, cope with something that big, you know. Absolutely. So you were talking earlier about uh, Harry's kind of stuck in fight mode after this experience. Mm -hmm. Um, And we see a lot of his behavior that lines up with that, like lashing out at Ron and Hermione. Um, And some of the other things he does, uh, I'm curious from a sort of trauma-informed perspective, what you think about some of the other things that Harry is uh, doing and experiencing throughout the book, um, such as um, kind of his campaign against Umbridge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I think all of that is um, actually sort of a healthy fight response, if that makes Mm -hmm. sense. So um, Harry... um, is trying to find ways to uh, um, express the bottled anger. You know, like multiple times in the book, he talks about like his temper, which was so close to the surface was rising again, you know, and, and it's all, yeah. it's all framed in this metaphor of like, Harry's always at a simmer in book five, you know, and just waiting mm-hmm. for the thing that's going to push him to the boiling point, you know? Um, and so he's, uh, I think trying to a little bit do the healthy thing and find appropriate outlets for this. And, and Umbridge is, you know, very obliging in that, you know, and so he's, um, we see Harry like really only begin to open up again and feel like hopeful and normal again when he's 
conducting meetings for Dumbledore's army. Um, mm-hmm. And so he he previously felt all of these fight impulses that were incongruent with his environment. Um, and a lot of people, a lot of like veterans who return home from war, um, they experience that same thing. Like uh, my my body is now trained for and expecting this environment where um, I'm going to need to fight for my life pretty regularly. Um, and then you return home and it's really no longer appropriate to be fighting with the people around you you know um and people tend to people tend to judge you for that they tend to not want to spend time with you for that when they feel like uh they're they're you're combative when they feel like you're fighting with them all the time you know um and uh harry is having to kind of deal with the shame associated with that and ron and hermione are trying to do their best to be supportive but they're also like um feeling you know, how do I be careful around this person, which isn't really, doesn't always really help. And so Harry finds this outlet through Dumbledore's army um, to um, make that impulse to push back and to uh, rebel and defend himself and defend the people around him, you know, um, because I think that was a part of his trauma is feeling like he couldn't protect Cedric because it all just happened so fast. You know, um, he has this feeling like he's protecting himself and he's fighting back against Umbridge, against the ministry, against Voldemort. And he's also helping other people to do the same thing. And I think another big part of that is its connection. You know, he he has positive relationships with people. He feels like he has power and agency in this situation again, um, which was not something that he had at the beginning of book five. Something that I feel like is significant. When he's back at the Dursleys, he encounters Dementors very soon. Mm-hmm. And while this is, you know, obviously an attack by Umbridge, it's it feels significant from a writing perspective that J.K. Rowling chose Dementors to be the attackers mm-hmm. and not some other magical, invisible, um, you know, threat for Harry mm-hmm. and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the connection between post-traumatic stress and that experience of Dementors or depression. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. Um, the So you and I have talked about Dementors being sort of a, a metaphor for depression. And um, so, and I mentioned earlier, like the, there's the fight response and the flight response. And those mm-hmm. are the things that Um, those are the impulses that the body has when we still feel like there's something I can do about this threat. Um, when a threat is overwhelming, the tiger has me, he's chewing on me, this is going to happen. Um, we shut down. We, the body eventually like, nope, this is too much. Um, we're, this isn't something we're going to want to feel. Um, the body eventually shuts down. Uh, and the the goal is to um, cause the threat to lose interest or let its guard down so that we can then get up and run away. Or um, if I'm going to die, at least I'm not going to feel it, right? And so the um, in the modern world, that looks like depression. Um, you mm-hmm. feel numb, you lose muscle tone, you feel like you can't move. Um, there's this very literal experience of um, almost paralysis where it feels like moving is not safe, you know, where it feels like 
I'm trying to lift my arms and they just feel heavier, you know, like I'm, I'm, uh, shutting down a little bit. And, um, for a lot of people who experience PTSD, the thing that follows is depression because even just the experience of trauma is overwhelming and Mm -hmm. there, the body can only be stressed for a certain amount of time before it eventually says, we're not going to feel this anymore. And then we go into depression. We feel hopeless. We feel hopelessness and helplessness, I think are the, the, the biggest, um, trademarks of that feeling you know and so um i think it is it's very metaphorical that harry kind of goes through this experience and then at the beginning of book five there are dementors you know and even as harry is you know violently angry at everybody in his life right now um when he goes to uh pull up a memory for the patronus he sees ron and hermione's faces you know and that's the thing that that helps him to um pull up a significantly powerful Patronus to get rid of them. You know, like they, this is a, a significant um, thing to note about Harry, I guess, is that he still feels, and, and everybody who kind of experiences PTSD, like even as we're kind of feeling like people aren't trustworthy and people don't understand, we still have that desire for connection. We still have people that we love and care about that we want to feel connected to again, you know. Something else that Harry experiences, and this is slightly different, because you mentioned night terrors earlier, um, which he has with Cedric. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm kind of curious on your perspective, where he's dreaming about the Department of Mysteries, and there's obviously a whole layer of Harry is a horcrux, and Voldemort is trying to trick him. (laughs) Um, But I'm just curious on your thoughts about this, if you thought there's any... um, significant uh, trauma-informed perspective we can look at when we're looking at Harry's dreams of the prophecy. Yeah, um, I think that, uh, like you said, night terrors are a big part of PTSD for a lot of people um, in a large part because when we're asleep, our defenses are sort of down and the brain is trying to kind of um, incorporate the day into... Uh, into the the bigger um, vat of information that we all have in our brains, mm-hmm. so to speak, you know. So the the brain is basically taking the day and trying to work it into the um, the rest of the information that we have. Um, and so for people with trauma, they have this one experience that is really resisting that integration. Um, it's really kind of it's almost abscessed um, and kind of existing on its own, and it's it's seems like too much too fast or too soon for it to really make sense with the rest of the information Mm -hmm. that we have and so that leads to night terrors for a lot of people because they are having a fight-or-flight response while they're asleep while they're in this very vulnerable um position of you know being asleep and being unguarded and you know not alert you know the the body is bottom-up processing is ramping up into a fight-or-flight response Um, And so the brain is going to interpret that as nightmares. Um, And so Harry's kind of dealing with that. He revisits the graveyard a lot in his dreams. Um, And then he also has this feeling of um, walking down long hallways and encountering locked doors um, and things like that. And he even says at one point, like, he kind of interprets this as feeling thwarted, you know, feeling like 
his life is dead ends now. Like his life has been limited by his, by this experience that he doesn't know how to move past from. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, and, uh, I think that was like, that was a pretty good metaphor there too. And ultimately these dreams, when they lead him to the department of mysteries, um, it becomes this attempt to save Sirius who is actually safe and results in another significant trauma for Harry and, I'm mm-hmm. just curious on your thoughts about this, the rescue and all of that that surrounds it. Yeah, um, I think that um, this really had the potential to be, um, so there's PTSD and there's also complex PTSD and there, you know, um, multiple traumatic experiences tend to um, uh kind of amplify the experience of subsequent traumas, you know, and this, the, the whole thing that happened at the, the department of mysteries, um, I think for one thing, Harry, uh, felt somewhat helpless in this situation because they were immediately outnumbered. Um, he felt like he had brought everybody there. And so anything that happened would Mm -hmm. be his fault, you know? Um, and, and then he's also, um, possessed by Voldemort and then he's immobilized. Um, and I won't get too much into this part, but, um, feeling immobilized is a really key part of trauma. Um, for my car accident, uh, my, my, after the whiplash, my neck froze up and I couldn't move my head. Um, and that probably compounded a lot Mm -hmm. of things for me. The fact that I felt frozen during that experience, you know, um, somebody who is restrained, in some way, um, is, is going to have a different experience from somebody who felt like they could move, um, during that experience, you know, um, children often feel paralyzed just because they're small, you know, so that, that's a thing too. And so Harry feels restrained, um, while he is having this experience again of I'm going to die. Um, because he's being possessed by Voldemort. Voldemort is in the room, which is already, you know, like, (laughs) that that alone would give him the feeling that he's going to die and he can't defend himself and he can't move this is just happening to him it's like his hands are tied Mm -hmm. behind his back you know so that really had the full setup of um being uh, a whole new set of trauma symptoms for harry um i think the things that helped him to uh resolve that and um uh, negotiate that experience into um, not a traumatic experience is or not a into not having having a, a worsening of PTSD symptoms I should say mm-hmm. um, is the conversation that he has with Dumbledore um, in Dumbledore's office after the Department of Mystery so um, he finally gets yeah. answers um, he hears Dumbledore say um, I share the blame in Sirius's death because of what I did and how I messed up, which, by the way, was also how I messed up with you, and mm-hmm. I'm sorry. And so he and Dumbledore have this point of connection. Um, man, the, um, the part where, like, at the very, very end of the chapter, a tear rolls down Dumbledore's face, and he says, like, um, I didn't make you a prefect because I thought you had enough to be going on with, which is just this really profound understanding that Dumbledore has of, of 
what it must be like yeah. to be Harry, you know, and Harry hasn't had that for the entire book, you know, the entire book, no matter what anyone says, they don't know what I'm feeling right now. And so to have this understanding that Dumbledore got it even all the way back then, you know, I think really meant something to Harry. And then being able to smash things, being able to yell at Dumbledore, finally being able to have someone to blame, you know, um, being able to um, have this physical expression of everything that's going on inside of him, I think really helps to um, discharge a lot of that fight response. Like he gets to feel, and he even actually describes feeling violently towards Dumbledore. Like he talks about like breaking that wise old face or mm -hmm. something like that. Like he he wants to attack Dumbledore, which is this fight or flight response of I need to um, I need to hurt in order to defend myself, you know, because it's yeah. it's too much, you know, and it, it's not processing rationally but it's it that's the feeling that comes up so he has these violent thoughts he smashes things he yells he blames Dumbledore he blames himself and he even says like I think he says something like I don't want to live or I, I don't want to be alive anymore or something like that because Dumbledore says like this is part of being alive and Harry says I, well then I don't want to anymore or something like that and and which is getting these things out, mm -hmm. you know, and having it resolve in a, a connection point, you know, because there, there's a version of this where Harry rages and screams and yells and blames. And then Dumbledore says, what do you want me to do about it? Or, well, we've all just got to toughen up now. Okay. You know, or something like that where, and, and where Dumbledore is not apologizing. He's not trying to understand Harry doesn't feel, Harry still feels alone yeah. with his feelings, you know, and that can be re-traumatizing um, when somebody finally allows themselves to feel everything that's there and it's met with um, somebody undermining it or getting angry back to where it feels like it's not safe to be angry. You know, it's not okay to be angry. That's not something I'm allowed to feel. Um, having Dumbledore take responsibility for for his part in what happened, um, helping Harry to feel like that guilt you're feeling, I completely mm -hmm. get that. That grief you're feeling, I completely get that. Um, you know, the shame and the rage, I completely get that. You know, and and this is kind of what Harry has been sort of wanting from Dumbledore for all of book five. Um, all book five, Harry is thinking to himself, like, Dumbledore and I are in this together. Like, we both know about Voldemort coming back. We both tried to tell the world um, the Daily Prophet and the Ministry are persecuting the both of us and making both of us out to be crazy, you know, and we should be in this together, but he's ignoring me yeah. for some reason. And so finding out why and being able to resolve that, having repair in that relationship, um, I think allows for the body to kind of discharge some of this fight or flight response you know it moves him more toward a place where he feels safe because he's not alone with it right. anymore you know and he feels like it's okay to express this anger I'm justified in this anger I did almost die I did survive you know like these these things can he can now feel these things the fandom response to Order of the Phoenix um, mm -hmm. you know we talk about 
how much is going on internally in Harry. And this is why we get that, you know, how he's called Caps Lock Harry, where he's yelling and throwing things and some people call it temper tantrums. And what do you have to say to people who are, they maybe hate Order of the Phoenix because of Caps Lock Harry? Mm -hmm. I think that... Um, I, on the surface, I kind of see where they're coming from. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also think that there's kind of a, a conversation to be had here about the way that we um, talk about PTSD, the way we talk about trauma, the way we treat um, the people in our lives who have mental health issues and a lot of mental health issues like we talked about depression and the freeze response kind of have a very close connection um anxiety and the fight or flight response have a very close connection um i think that uh we if you if you're not dealing with a particular mental health issue um these things tend to feel very irrational to you um, you're, why are you anxious? You're fine. Why are you depressed? You have all this going on for you. Why are you, um, responding in this way as if now is then? It doesn't make any sense, you know, like, because we're experiencing the present moment. You know, we don't see a Voldemort or a Cedric anywhere, mm-hmm. and we only see a classroom. And so we're like, why do you, what this is not the time to be freaking out this is embarrassing this is irrational and it's hurting people and uh i you know like we have that kind of reaction to it and so in a way i kind of understand but in another way i think it's important to um to also educate ourselves and spread the awareness as much as possible that people who are experiencing a mental health issue or not experiencing the present moment the way that you are, Mm -hmm. you know, um, they may be having an experience in their body and in their mind and their internal dialogue um, that is very painful and that is uh, really has to do with something that has happened in the past and they're, they're working to integrate that, you know, Um, And I think fans can maybe reread The Order of the Phoenix, uh, I I hope, with a a different um, lens, Mm -hmm. you know, and reread everything that happens to Harry um, through the lens of half of him is still in the graveyard um, and just see if it makes a little bit more sense. Um, when you know somebody in real life who is struggling with PTSD and they, or, or even if they don't have a diagnosis, but you happen to know they've been through a traumatic response, a bit, excuse me, (laughs) when you happen to know they've been through a traumatic experience, um, try and sort of see, see their behavior through the lens of, Um, they are still working on integrating this experience, you know, and see if their behavior makes sense. And I think we are going to find that our own responses get a little bit different. 
Um, when you feel like someone is angry at you, it's natural to feel angry back because your fight response is saying to theirs that th- this person is just at me right now and I don't know why and I feel threatened. Mm-hmm. And so you're, you're going to get angry back and that's completely normal. Um, when you're able to realize that they are having a fight response to something that's not about you, um, you're able to kind of turn off your fight response. You know, you're able to realize that this person isn't a danger to me. They're not, you know, they're, they're just, um, they're responding to something that's not about me. And I feel bad for this person, you know, and I, I want to support this person. Um, I feel a response of, um, it's okay to be angry, you know, instead of an angry response. You know what I mean? I think you, you look at the world a little bit differently um, when you have this lens in mind, you know, so I just want to encourage people as a thought experiment, maybe go back and reread some of Order of the Phoenix with this in mind and um, maybe also kind of practice thinking about the people in your life who sort of have these responses and what might be a different way to interact with them, you know. Absolutely. I think that's, uh, we could all do to reread a little bit as we gain more mm-hmm. information about that. Uh, how how Harry is processing his experiences and that can help us figure out how we're processing our own experiences as well. Yeah. For those moments where in the book sometimes Harry's anger at the people he loves kind of crosses a line between I'm angry about something that doesn't have to do with you to actively hurting people, Um, you know, sending Mm -hmm. Hedwig to peck Ron and Hermione till their fingers bleed. Right. And gets a little verbally abusive here and there. Yes. Um, And that's, that's a, you know, that's the reality of these experiences sometimes. Um, So I'm wondering how you think, um, when we're responding to people around us who we know have gone through something traumatic, mm-hmm. um, how do we find that balance in holding them accountable but respecting where they're coming from? Yeah, um, absolutely. I think uh, Hermione gives a really great example when Harry says something like, um, you know, been having a nice little chat about lavender or something like that. And Hermione says, actually, I told her to stuff it and it'd be great if you would stop biting my head off, you know? And, and I was like, yes. (laughs) And she says it very calmly. You know, she doesn't escalate. She doesn't demean him in any way. She's just like this, that this isn't what this is, Harry, You you know, come, come, come back to the present moment, you know, like actually, I defended you, you know, like, and, and she kind of, she just defends her boundary very calmly Mm -hmm. um, and very uh, without escalating it or anything, just in a way that she knows Harry well enough that she knows all I need to do is draw his attention to it and he'll stop, you know? So she just very calmly defends her own boundaries. Like Harry's attacking her for no reason. And she tells him, Hey man, you're attacking me for no reason. And that's all it takes. And then it, it even, it's hysterical because it even says, like, there was a brief pause. Sorry, Harry says. <laughs> and so he just, like, he just responds with, like, oh, right. Sorry. <laughs> um, and so sometimes that's all it takes is just this person is having a response to something that happened a long time ago, drawing their attention to that, and then bringing them back to the present moment. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the warning label on that is obviously, um, 
this has to be somebody that you know and somebody that feels like you understand them, which is different from is somebody you understand, right? Mm -hmm. Like you can understand somebody if they don't feel like you understand them for any one of a bunch of different reasons. Um, This isn't going to go over well. Right. (laughs) Um, Hermione knows her relationship with Harry and uh, knows that Harry relies on her and trusts her. And so this is something that she can do in their relationship to kind of um, neutralize this angry response that Harry is coming at her with, you know, and I, I loved that. And I thought that was a great example. Um, Obviously, um, you know, for some people with PTSD, um, symptoms can be very extreme. Um, Obviously never accept abuse from anyone. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you're afraid for your safety, seek help. But um, if we're, um, if you're trying to figure out how to support a loved one in your life um, who has um, misdirected responses toward other people um, that are, um, you know, at maximum just interfering with their ability to have healthy relationships. Um, I think supporting them in a way that, like, you're also very aware of your boundaries and um, you're practicing good self-care. You're not trying to make suggestions or reinterpret or fix it or anything like that, but you're, you're trying to just understand and listen, but in a way that also um, honors who you are as a person, if that makes sense. Um, So people can also experience like vicarious trauma, which is where, you know, you listen to somebody's traumatic experience and you kind of have this, um, you kind of get this feeling that your boundaries have been violated or that you're, you want to get away or you're, you're having like an internal fight or flight response, you know, very minimally, but it's there to hearing about somebody else's traumatic experience. So I think just recognizing that Mm -hmm. and um, being kind to yourself and giving yourself time to decompress and time to, um, process the things that you hear. This is something that they they tell you a lot about um, when you're a counselor to do is to like I'm a I'm I'm a counselor and I, I have my own therapist, you know, so that I have I hear things and I have somewhere to put them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I have a place I can go once a week to um, talk to my therapist about the things that I hear and what it means and you know so that um, somebody else's trauma is not becoming my trauma if that makes sense. So. Um, I think that's something that people can do to kind of, that's a way that people can support somebody struggling with PTSD without, um, without taking on more than is fair, if that makes sense. Yeah. All that being said is lovely and I think is a really valuable tool for people who are experiencing these things in real life, which is a lot of us. And if there is anything else regarding, uh, from your notes, you know, anything we haven't covered about mm-hmm. trauma and Harry Potter, if you want to talk about it right now, um, anything else? Sure. Yeah. Um, I guess on that, on that last one also, um, my favorite part of Order of the Phoenix is, um, basically the kind of intervention <laughs> that they have with Harry at Grimmauld Place where, um, Harry has like this 
additional traumatic experience of witnessing Nagini's attack on Arthur Weasley. Mm -hmm. Um, And afterward, he even describes himself as feeling unclean and not wanting to interact with the normal people. And he kind of further isolates himself, um, which I think is definitely a metaphor. Like, I think that's definitely something that people with PTSD can kind of identify with. Mm -hmm. Like, there's this feeling of like, the thing that I went through messed me up to such a degree that I can't be around people who don't understand it. You know, like, I just, I don't, I don't know how to, how to be able to do that. Um, And uh, so they kind of have this intervention when Hermione gets to Grimmauld Place and uh, they start by identifying communication problems. It's great because it all really goes exactly the way that it would go in like a therapy session. You know, it just kind of happens because these are all very good people who love each other, you know, and and genuinely want for things to be better. Um, So Ginny says like, you won't look at any of us. And Harry's like, it's you lot that won't look at me. Um, and then Hermione says, maybe you just keep taking it in turns and keep missing each other. And, and so they're, you know, joking around with each other a little bit and trying to really identify like what the problem is here. And, um, Ginny says, uh, Harry says, I didn't want to talk to anybody. And Ginny says, well, that was stupid of you because I'm the only other person that's been through what you've been through. And she again says it the same way that, that Hermione does like very matter of factly, like, Hey man, you know, have you, you know, like I, I, I under, I understand what you're going through. And I, I think that there's a way you can help yourself, you know, and, um, Ginny and Harry, I think also I'm a, I was always a huge Ginny Harry shipper. Like that was, that was my OTP and I, I will go down with that. Shit. Um, but Ginny, I think it was significant in book three, um, after the Dementors get onto the train and then leave again. Um, Harry collapsed and he feels embarrassed about it. And he looks over at Ginny and, um, she's like huddled in her corner, uh, like kind of sobbing a little bit and looking nearly as bad as Harry felt like that's something that he thinks. And then he says, didn't any of you fall off your sleep, uh, off your seats? And, uh, Ron says, no, Ginny was shaking like mad though. Um, Ginny had also before prisoner of Azkaban been through a very traumatic near death experience. And people who um, have had previous traumatic experiences are more likely to experience trauma. They're more likely likely to experience depression. Um, and so I think it's significant that both Harry and Ginny were very affected by the Dementors in book three, just as a, a side note. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Harry has this connection with Ginny as a trauma survivor when they're all at Grimwald Place and talking about it. Ginny says, I've been through what you've been through. And this just like sparks a light bulb in Harry's head you know and he's getting ideas and support from Ron and Hermione but he on some level he feels like he can't trust them because you know they they could be lying to him to make him feel better or they could be just not knowledgeable enough because they don't none of them know what it is that they're dealing with here you know and so he has skepticism about Ron and Hermione's support but with Ginny she really does know she really has been there and that's the only thing that starts to make him feel better you know Mm -hmm. and he describes like being comforted in a way that also makes sense you know and that that's the key it appeals to um his physical experience you know but it also appeals to um his kind of cognitive awareness you know and that's the key to integrating an experience when you feel like it makes sense to both your, your mind and your body. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, 
Another really great example of that is um, Harry's connection with Luna as a trauma survivor at the very end of book five. So he has this, um, this confrontation with Dumbledore, and then at the end they're able to sort of repair their relationship a little bit. Um, and then he um, is kind of floating around, like trying to find a way to deal with his grief about Sirius and not wanting to interact with people um, because he's still feeling that sense of, of isolation from other people. Um, and then he goes to talk to Luna, and at first he even wants to avoid her. Um, but then he's like, yeah, she would have heard me coming. I guess I'm not getting out of this. And then they get to talking. And um, he there's this one part uh, he's thinking to himself, um, and it goes, an odd feeling rose in Harry, an emotion quite different from the anger and grief that had filled him since Sirius's death. It was a few moments before he realized that he was feeling sorry for Luna. Mm. And that that was just such a beautiful moment to me because it was this it's this point of connection between him and Luna where for the first time he's feeling curiosity and compassion towards another person and um, compassion and curiosity are kind of neurological opposites from fight and flight from from fear basically yeah. Um, when we're afraid of something, we're not neurologically set up to feel compassion for them, right? Like you can kind of see how that would be counterproductive. Like the brain almost doesn't let you feel both at the same time. Um, and it's this this pity that he's kind of feeling for Luna that first starts to kind of create movement in his nervous system. Um, he's really stuck in this um, this grief and, and this, um, you know, like he has every right in the world really to kind of feel sorry for himself. Like yeah. he's been through some stuff in the last couple of years, you know what I mean? But he's beginning to kind of get sucked into that, like a whirlpool and he's kind of stuck there. And it's this, um, compassion for Luna that first starts to kind of move him out of that. Um, and Luna also kind of gives Harry some understanding, like Harry kind of vaguely says, like, I didn't feel like going down to the feast. And Luna just looks at him, you know, in that Ivana Lynch look mm -hmm. and says, no, I don't suppose you do, you know? And so she's really understanding, like, yeah, I wouldn't want to go either. And then she asks him about Sirius, you know, so she knows exactly what's going on with him and that feeling of being understood. Right. Like, we're very social creatures. We're pack animals. You know, we feel safety in numbers, you know. And when somebody is looking at us in that way and saying, I completely understand, and we really feel that, like, that's that's a very healing moment. Absolutely. You know, um, and then that whole scene kind of ends with Harry. Um, it says Harry nodded curtly, but found that for some reason he did not mind Luna talking about Sirius. He had just remembered that she too could see Thestrals. And then later he says, um, it says, as he watched her go, he found that the terrible weight in his stomach seemed to have lessened slightly. Oh. And so they have, you know, very, very different people. <laughs> you know, they don't have to have had the same life experiences and, you know, think about everything the same way or whatever. They just, in this one little thing, they really understand each other. Yeah. And that experience more than anything helps Harry to kind of move out of um, out of this uh, this grief that he had been stuck in for so long. Oh, thank goodness for Luna. <laughs> ah, I love Luna. <laughs> She's the best. Oh, my gosh. Yes. 
we're getting close to the end of our time here. So I just want to check in and see if there's any final words you have about Harry Potter and mental health or uh, and any more words on being kind to those with trauma. Anything you'd like to finish us off with? Um, I don't think so. I think um, you and I talked last time about um, just the importance of kind of talking about your experience. You know, I think um, with so many different things like sexual assault, people talking about that when they never really used to, you know, and um, mental health issues. Like I would, I would love for there to eventually be a day when you go see your therapist, like you go see your dentist, you know, it's just this thing that I do. It's work that I put into myself. It's a thing that I do to stay healthy and to take care of myself because I'm worth taking care of. You know, I, I want to be as healthy as I possibly can because I've got, you know, my one life and I want it to be a good one, you know, like just thinking of yourself in that way and thinking of the people in your life that way. Um, and, uh, I think sharing your experiences, like no, no pressure. This isn't a, like a should type of thing. Um, but if you feel like you want to, I hope that you feel like that that's possible for you. I hope you find the people in your life who, um, you feel like give, give you that point of connection and understanding, you know, um, and healing from these things is possible, you know, healing that humans are incredibly resilient and bouncy, <laughs> you know, and, um, I think it, sometimes it almost happens on accident, like it does with Harry, but healing does happen. And so I just, I hope that, um, we can all kind of move towards understanding these things about each other and, um, treating them, uh, like the health issues they are, you know, and, and just working towards, I guess, kind of being healthier together. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Sarah. This has been so enlightening. And I think that there's a lot that people will be able to get out of this talk. Um, thank you again for being on the show with us. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It's been lots of fun. my interview with Sarah Oliveris. I hope you all enjoyed it and I can't wait to share our next special guest next week. Thanks again, Sarah, for joining us. Now, if any of you listening want to be on the show, please visit our website and fill out our submission form. We would love to have you on as a guest. You can share your story anonymously as a whisper if you'd like. Join me next week for another conversation in the headmaster's office. Thanks, y'all. See you next time.